Acts 22 is where we'll be, and we are continuing our study. I think we've got four messages left, and we have completed this book, which we've been studying for just over a year um, on Sunday nights, and uh, we'll be in Acts 22 and 23 tonight, and we'll meet together in verse 22 of chapter 22 here in just a moment. I don't know about you, but have you ever felt like life just comes at you with one thing after another, after another, after another? This thing falls apart, and this thing's going wrong, and this person's turning against you, and this health thing is messed up, and it's just a string of difficulties. Have you ever been in seasons like that? I certainly have. Um, I, I know many of you are in that or have been in that. Um, I I think really the last year, uh, our church has been through a very unique season of difficulty um, in the lives of our people. Um, It's it's in some ways uh, surprised me how much uh, some of you have gone through and, and, and one thing after the other. And that's really, hasn't it been, if you've been with us through our study, that's been kind of Paul's journey lately, hasn't it? He's been in what city ministering the last couple of weeks? Do you remember where Paul's been the last couple of weeks in our series? He's been in the city of what? No, not Ephesus. A little Bible trivia here. It starts with a J. Jerusalem. I give it away, didn't I? He's been in Jerusalem. You remember what, what God promised him in Jerusalem, don't you? You remember that, that God promised him difficulty, and it was so obvious that he's promised difficulty that his other Christian buddies said, that means God doesn't want you to go. And we discovered that di- we all have a destiny of difficulty as Christians. We are promised suffering and difficulty. That is the Christian life, that we live cross-shaped lives as Christians. Um, Jesus promised us that. And then last, last week, um, as we were studying, we saw what it was like to minister in hostile territory. That Paul did what he could to not be offensive but the people still got offended, right? And so offended, they tried to kill him. And then we saw his defense, right? And we saw some good theological truths there um, that were good for us to understand. But what I want you to see tonight in our passage is that as Paul is seeing these difficulties, one after the other after the other, what we're going to notice about God speaking to Paul specifically in chapter 3 verse 20 or chapter 23 verse 11 is that God wants us in the midst of our chaos to have courage and to have hope and that can be really difficult sometimes can it it's real easy to get discouraged and, and hey I just want to help you church family if you if you feel tempted to discouragement you're not alone that's where Paul was wasn't he And what we're going to see tonight is that God is not going to leave his son, his his minister, in this state of discouragement. He's going to speak to him and give him really just a few words in red in verse number 11. But they're going to shape the rest of Paul's journey in the book of Acts. And what we're going to discover is that even though everything around Paul was in chaos, Paul was able to have courage and hope because he knew God was in control. Even if everything is in chaos, 
You and I can have hope when we know God is in control. As we work through tonight's account, it will remind us and it'll help us in a lot of ways. It will remind us that even when life is out of control, God is in control. It will show us, and this is what I'm most excited to show you, the variety of ways God shows he's in control. Because you would be tempted to miss it if you just read these chapters. I hope you make it a habit to read what we're about to preach on Sunday nights. It'll help you. And I'm hoping tonight that this story, this true story, will inspire all of us to have courage and hope in God even when it seems like life is out of control. I want us to read some of the passage. I won't read all of it for time. But I want our, our passage is going to break down in three sections, and you'll see that here in a minute. It's going to break down talking about the threats against Paul, God's plans for Paul in verse 11, chapter 23. And then we're going to end the passage seeing God's deliverance of Paul. Okay? Let's start in chapter 22, verse 22, and we're going to read down to verse 11 of chapter 23. Engage your mind with the reading of God's word. Follow the story because I won't take a lot of time to tell you every detail in the passage as we preach tonight. Verse 22, remember, Paul made his defense, and here's how the crowd responded. Not good. Verse 22. And they gave him audience unto this word. It's the word in verse 21 that God sent him to the Gentiles. And then lifted up their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for it is not fit that he should live. And as they cried out and cast off their clothes and threw dust into the air. And the chief captain commanded him to be brought into the castle and bade that he should be examined by scourging, that he might know wherefore they cried so against him. And they bound him. Remember, that's key word. They bound him with thongs or straps. And Paul said to the centurion that stood by, is it lawful for you to scourge a man that is a Roman and uncondemned? And when the centurion heard that, he went and told the chief captain, saying, Take heed what thou doest, for this man is a Roman. Then the chief captain came and said unto him, Tell me, art thou a Roman? He said, Yea. And the chief captain answered, With a great sum obtained I this freedom. And Paul said, But I was freeborn. And straightway they departed from him, which should have examined him. And the chief captain also was afraid after he knew those a Roman, and because they had bound him, And on the morrow, because he would have known the certainty wherefore he was accused of the Jews, he loosed him from his bands. He unarrested him or whatever. He let him go. And commanded the chief priests and all their counsel to appear and brought Paul down and set him before him. So now he's formally being tried. He was informally giving testimony before the Jews. Now he's formally being tried by the Sanhedrin. Verse number one. And Paul, earnestly beholding the council, said, Men and brethren, I have lived in all good conscience before God unto this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded them that stood by him to smite him on the mouth. Then Paul said unto him, God shall smite thee, thou whited wall, for sittest thou to judge me after the law and commandest me to be smitten contrary to law. And they that stood by said, Revilest thou God's high priest? Then Paul said, I I wist not, or I knew not, brethren, that he was the high priest. For it is written, Thou shalt not speak evil of the ruler of thy people. 
Verse number six. But when Paul perceived that the one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council and said, men and brethren, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee. Notice he's saying in present tense, I am a Pharisee. That's interesting. Of the hope and resurrection of the dead, I am called in question. And when he had so said, there arose a dissension between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the multitude was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, neither angel nor spirit, but the Pharisees confess both. By the way, doctrinal division's been around a long time, right? In verse number nine, and there arose a great cry, and the scribes that were of the Pharisees' part arose and strove, saying, we find no evil in this man. But if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him, let us not fight against God. Does that sound familiar? Acts chapter number four, I believe. And when there arose a great dissension, the chief captain, this is the Roman authorities now, fearing lest Paul should have been pulled in pieces of them, commanded the soldiers to go down and to take him by force from among them and to bring him into the castle. And the night following, the Lord stood by him and said, be of good cheer, Paul, for as thou hast testified of me in Jerusalem, so must thou bear witness also at Rome. I want you to see in this passage the threats that were against Paul, and I just want you to get a taste of the barrage of things he's facing. It might put in perspective that when God's speaking to him in this type of difficulty, we can take courage as well. And the passage starts off, I don't know if you caught this in verse 22 um, through 30 of chapter 22, it starts off with a Roman centurion, right, a Roman soldier, who is interrogating Paul by beating him. If you remember last week, Paul had made his defense to the crowd and they weren't having it. And so in verse 22 through 24, the Romans who really are the supreme governing authority in the area, there's a very unique interplay between Jewish uh, rulers and Roman rulers that we don't have time to get into. But at the end of the day, the the real bosses in the area were the Romans. It was their job to keep the peace. And so they're still not sure why everyone's in a big fury about this. And so if you remember, they were so unaware of who Paul was and what the big deal was that they thought he was some Egyptian guy who raised up an army of assassins. That's how clueless these people are. And in a normal situation, you would think that they would get to the bottom of the situation by just asking the man some questions, right? Well, not Paul, not in this situation of life, you know? It doesn't have to be the easy way. Does life feel like that? Sometimes we talked about the easy button this morning. It doesn't have to be the easy way. It has to be the hardest way possible that these people have to get information on Paul. So rather than just asking the man some questions, they beat the living tar out of him. How's that for a good day? So here's this man, uh, this Roman, who's beating Paul up, and Paul stops him from beating him because he pulls the Roman citizen card. And we'll talk about that later and what that means. But nonetheless, here's Paul, not a good day, gets beat up by a Roman guy just to answer some simple questions that he's already answered like two times in the text. So then it gets worse. He gets, the the, the Romans, doesn't this sound like Jesus' story? The Romans don't really know what to do with this guy. The Jews want to punish him, but the Romans know that they're really crazy. 
But yet they take him and they're like, I don't really know what the real problem is here. And so they really want the Jews to handle it. But then the Jews get their hands on Paul and it's like, oh, these guys are, they're a little bit cuckoo for Cocoa Buffs. Let's take him back because they're starting riots and stuff. It's just like Jesus's story. If we'll, we'll get there eventually in Matthew, but it's the same thing happening to Paul. So they give him back to the, the Jewish rulers, the Sanhedrin. And if you remember from our earlier parts of the study, the Sanhedrin was made up of two groups, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, right? The Pharisees, Paul's, or sorry, Luke is pointing out the text, they believed from the Old Testament that there was an afterlife. There was a resurrection. The, the Sadducees, I don't know if you ever heard this in Sunday school, they were sad, you see, because they didn't believe in a resurrection. That's a sad thing. And so they bring Paul into their little kangaroo court and they put him on trial. Apparently they thought they needed more they needed to give the preacher more opportunity to speak, right? And so they bring him into their court and they're, they're examining him and he stands up before them and his opening legal argument is, brothers, I, look at verse number uh, one, I have lived in all good conscience toward God up until this day. And they, as they hear those words, they think, you're a, you're a blasphemous man, no man has lived in all good conscience. And so the high priest Ananias says, punch this guy in the face. He's blasphemed God. So Paul gets punched. Man, he's like a rag doll. I mean, you think life is bad. This guy's getting punched left and right. I mean, that's a bad, bad string of days. And so Paul retorts back. He says, who do you think you are? That's my translation. Bro, you know, what are you, what are you smacking me around like a rag doll? You're disobeying the law. You say I'm disobeying the law. You're disobeying the law because the law clearly says you can't be punching people like this. And I think Luke is writing this to kind of give his readers in the first century an early clue that if they're facing injustice in trial, it's nothing new. Paul was facing the same thing. And I want you to notice Paul's response when they tell him that he was um, saying something and accusing the high priest. Look at verse number four. They that stood by, they asked him, are you reviling God's high priest? Now, in, in every biblical sense, Paul was right, right? This guy, in, in the terms of the Old Testament law, had no authority to be punching Paul around. But I love Paul's response in verse number five. Some, some commentators maybe think he's being a little sarcastic. He might be. But at the end of the day, he is apologizing. I think that's something you and I need to learn, okay? The person who's offended, who you've offended, they don't need to clean their side of the street for you to apologize for what you did wrong. I'm gonna say that again. If, someone's, if you've hurt somebody and you've done something wrong, don't wait for them to clean their side of the street before you apologize. Paul gives us that example. He says, I, I did, you're right. The, the Bible says, I, I'm not supposed to do this. He says in verse number five that the Bible says, thou shalt not speak evil of the ruler of thy people. It reminds us of how David even respected Saul when he had a chance to kill him. And then as the dialogue goes on, we'll talk about this again in a little bit. Paul, I think smartly, divides the council over the issue of the resurrection and helps them to realize that he's not committed a crime. The whole reason they're wanting to kill him is because of a theological disagreement about the resurrected Christ. And so he brings this up, I think, in verse um, number six. But I want you to notice how they respond. 
It gets violent again, verse number 10. After all the arguing, they realize they shouldn't be arguing with each other. They all just hate this guy. And it says in, in verse number 10 that they were about to pull him into pieces. Now, I'll just let your imagination figure out what that looked like. Uh, I don't think they were, you know, gently arresting him and putting handcuffs on him, okay? They were beating this guy up again. They were pulling him apart, maybe about to rip his clothes off and, and kill him. I don't know. But it was some bad stuff going on. And what I want you to realize is all of this stuff God had told him would happen to some degree, right? God said, you're going to go to Jerusalem. You're going to be bound and delivered unto the Gentiles. But listen, just because God promised Paul difficulty doesn't mean it makes it easy when it came. Okay? And God promises us difficulty in this life, and I, I'll, I'll sit there right in the seat with you, that just because Jesus says this life will be hard, I understand fully, and you understand, that doesn't make it easier when the difficulty happens. It doesn't cure us of the discouragement that can happen when difficulty comes, even if Jesus told us up front it would. It doesn't make it easier. Even for Paul, super Christian guy, right? The, the, the re repetition of difficulty, if you read between the lines in verse number 11, it was discouraging. If God had to come to him in the middle of the night and say, be of good cheer, can we all agree that maybe he wasn't of good cheer? Right? And I think most of us, we can handle one bad thing. But when it's two and three and four and five, it gets a little tough, doesn't it? But what I'm thankful for is that when life is out of control and when you feel like you have nothing to hope in, God offers us hope and encouragement. And hasn't that been what God has done? Do you remember Paul in Corinth? He's in a season of discouragement and fruitlessness in his ministry. He's being driven out by these people. He's being mocked by these people. And it was the same thing that God did that after a string of difficulties, God spoke to Paul and said, be not afraid. It is I go on speaking for I have much people in this city. And what verse 11 shows us is that God still has plans for Paul and God still has a plan for you and me. Let's read verse 11 together. And, and if you could just take one verse with you, take this one. Look at chapter three, verse 20, chapter 23, verse 11. In the night following, the Lord stood by him. The Lord stood by him. Think about that. What would that have felt like and looked like? And God speaks to Paul and says, be of good cheer. Well, that's easy for you to say, God, right? What do you mean be of good cheer? I'm being beaten up like a rag doll. Why does Paul need to be of good cheer? Because here's what God says. I have plans for you. I still have a plan for your life. And listen, if God has plans for your life, he's not going to let people kill you, right? That's what God is ultimately telling Paul. Listen, I know at every turn it feels like you're about to be killed. But let me just clear the air. I've got plans for you, not just here in Jerusalem. Look at verse 20, 
chapter 23, verse 11, you must testify of me in Rome. Paul wasn't in Rome yet, was he? So that is a promise from God that I'm gonna get you to Rome and you will testify of me there and every minute of the day leading up to that, you can be assured you will not die. And we'll see in chapter 27 when they're on a ship sailing to Rome and they're all about to die and everybody's worried. Paul's gonna be the one that stands up and says, it's okay, God told me we're gonna be here safe. I think he's referring back to this verse. And really what's interesting is chapter 23, verse 11 echoes what we'll see in chapter 28. You can maybe write this in the margin of your Bible. 28 verses 14 through 15. Look at chapter 28, verse 14 and 15. <clears throat> oh, I'm, I'm looking at the wrong verse. Here we go. Where we found brethren and were desired to tarry with them seven days, and so we went toward Rome. Now notice how verse 15 echoes this passage. And from thence, when the brethren heard of us, they came to meet us as far as the Apai Forum and the three taverns, whom when Paul saw, he thanked God and took courage, right? And so the rest of the book is gonna unfold how God was faithful to this promise, how God is telling Paul, I have more plans for you, and so I'm gonna promise your protection until those plans are fulfilled. And here's what he's telling him, and he's telling us. That if God is not done with us, we need to not be done with our life. God has a plan, and we need to be of good cheer. We need to have hope, because if God has left us on this earth, there is a purpose for that. And I think a lot of us, um, what happens, many folks, they'll lose their enthusiasm long before they lose their lives. They'll lose their will to fight. And the more that difficulties weigh on us, the more they crush our spirit and suck the hope out of us. But God wants you, Christian, even amidst difficulty, even amidst chaos, not to lose your hope. He wants you to do more than just exist. He wants you to do more than just take another breath and live another day. God wants you to finish your course with courage and resolution. But the question of the text is this, Pastor, how? Where do I find encouragement? Where do I find a, a, the will to fight another day? Where do I find hope? Here's where we find it. Courage comes when we realize God is in control even when life is out of control. Christian, remember that on your difficult days that even when life is out of control, God is in control. I think this is a good reminder, verse number 11, that something we all need to recognize. It reminds me of even what we talked about this morning about God as our creator, that our life is in God's hands ultimately. Church, full of health difficulties, your life is in God's hands. Cancer, injuries, none of that takes any of us a moment sooner than God intends. Our life is in the hands of God. Now, I want you to think Luke is writing to a specific audience. Remember, he's writing to first century Christians who really are entering times that are far more difficult than even what Paul faced. 
And what an encouragement it would have been for Luke to, in essence, say to them in verse number 11, if God has plans for you, you'll still be alive. <laughs> but if God allows you to die, you've, you've finished your course. Paul wouldn't die a minute sooner than God wanted him to, even though everybody wanted him dead. Christian, if God is in control over the very length of your days, what else is within his plan and his control? If God's authority over Paul's life was superior to the Sanhedrin council, to the centurion soldier, to Lysias, who we're gonna meet here in a moment, to Felix, to Festus, to Caesar, was there really anything Paul should fear? Was there really anything he should lose hope in? No. He could face all of his days with hope because he knew if he was still living, God still had plans for him. And if he wasn't living, that just must mean God was done. And he should trust God. It was not the Roman authorities Paul should fear, and it's not the Roman authorities you and I should fear, of course. It's not our government. It's not our cancer. It's not our health. Jesus said what we should fear. Fear not them which kill the body but are not able to kill the soul, but rather fear him, which is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. But I love that Jesus adds to that, the opposite end of that principle, that if God is in control of not only our body, but our soul, he says, fear not, you are of more value than many sparrows. Courage comes when we recognize God is in control, even when life is out of control. But God is more than just in control. Look at verse 11. You, you, gotta, you gotta meditate on this. The Lord stood by him. What does that indicate? Closeness. Now, that, that strikes me as different, doesn't it? Because God could have just spoken but he stood by him. He was there for him. And isn't that so much the ministry of the Spirit? God standing by us and with us and present in our lives and even in our darkness, in our difficulty. God is there. But the rest of the text has to answer this question. Okay, pastor, if God has plans for Paul and God wants Paul to do more than just live and die in Jerusalem, he wants him to get all the way to Rome. How on earth is God gonna do that, pastor? How is God gonna be in control? And how is God gonna show that he's in control even when life is out of control? Because here's what happens. You and I, we put God in a box. We expect God to show up in this type of a way, but God's, uh, God's tool belt of showing his control is much broader. And the text shows in several ways how God delivers Paul, how God accomplishes his plans, how God shows his control in your life and in mine. And I just wanna give you a couple thoughts that you might write down. I think in our passage tonight, we see that God does the extraordinary by using the ordinary. Now in Acts, we're used to God doing the extraordinary, aren't we? He, he's busted people out of jail with angels and earthquakes, Right? But that's not what happens in this passage. No angels, no earthquakes. He, he, he intervenes 
in Paul's uh, interrogation session spiced up with some beating by using something very, very ordinary. Look at chapter 22, verse 29. Sorry, uh, verse number 25. How does God deliver Paul from this beating? His Roman citizenship. He says, is it lawful for you to scourge a man that's a Roman? And then the, it might be easy for us to miss over the response of verse 29, but really what verse 29 is saying is that they withdrew from him immediately. They were afraid and they immediately unbound him, almost supernaturally. I mean, as soon as they figured out this guy was a Roman citizen and they had beat a Roman citizen, which is a big no-no, they're afraid they're gonna get their heads cut off. They are scared out of their minds and they literally are backing away like, oh no, what did we do? I mean, I don't know about you, but that seems, that seems supernatural. But God is doing the extraordinary in this passage by using the ordinary. No angels, no earthquakes, a Roman citizenship, right? And then later on in chapter 23, here's this council that wants to try him unto death. And God delivers Paul again by him just using his mind a little bit and bringing up the issue of the resurrection and gets these two, peop- these two groups who hate him to start arguing with each other. God uses the ordinary means there. And isn't that how God works so often? Christian, you've got to recognize this. God, most of the time, he uses very ordinary things to accomplish extraordinary plans. I think we underestimate God's ability to do something extraordinary by means of the ordinary. God is in the business of producing extraordinary spiritual change. We talked about this, that this morning. He transforms darkness and chaos into light in life. And I think throughout the centuries, Christians have assumed that the only way God can do something big is through some extraordinary thing. Christians want a big revival. They want a big conference. They want a big season of fasting. But let me ask you, in the course of history, has God more often used those things or the ordinary means of week-by-week church ministry? Day-by-day Bible reading. Regular prayer. I don't know about you. In my life, if I could subtract out all the conferences and camps I went to, but keep in the Bible reading, the prayer, and the weekly church attendance, my spiritual growth would be largely the same. But if you reversed it and try to just keep in all the big hype stuff and subtract out the ordinary stuff, I would be a starving, emaciated Christian. God does the extraordinary through the ordinary God's done some extraordinary providing for our family financially over the course of my adult life. But honestly, nine times out of 10, you know how God provides for us? A paycheck and a budget. (laughs) That's how he does it. And sometimes there's some crazy stuff. I could tell you some stories, honestly. But what I want you to see is that in this passage, God's wisdom and his power is highlighted not by the extraordinary, but by the ordinary Christian just because you're not seeing the extraordinary, don't miss God's hand in that. He does the extraordinary by the ordinary. I think what we also see in this passage, following verse 11, is that God's ways are unexpected by us, 
but they're planned by God. So God in verse 11 says, don't worry, Paul. I'm gonna get you to Rome and you're gonna testify for me there. And isn't it just like God that the moment he speaks, Satan tries to attack and disrupt, doesn't he? That's what happens. Look at verse number 12. There's a conspiracy to kill Paul. That's what the header of my Bible says, actually. And when it was day, so immediately Paul goes to bed that night and wakes up and this happens. And when it was day, certain of the Jews banded together and bound themselves, there's that word again, under a curse saying that they would neither eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. It's not just one guy. Look at verse 13. And there were more than 40 which had made this conspiracy. Okay. You're a hated person if there are 40 people who say, we're not even gonna eat or drink until you're dead. Sounds like Jezebel this morning, right? In our passage in 1 Kings 19. And here are these people, they're after Paul's life. (laughs) But God does something so unexpected and so ordinary. Here's this big plan to kill Paul. It just so happens, verse number 16, Paul has a nephew that just just so happened to be standing around when probably some goofball is talking just a little bit too loud. Do you have one of your friends who talks just a little bit too loud? Like, you're not talking to a crowd. It's just two people here. Quiet your voice down. And, And here's Paul's nephew, verse 16, and here's what happens. And when Paul's sister's son heard of their lying in wait, he went and entered in the castle and told Paul. He just so happened to hear this. Think about this. Long before this death threat, God gave Paul's sister a son. Don't know how many years before. We don't know how old he was, but God had done that. Long before this death threat, by some amazing thing, this nephew must have a positive relationship with Paul. I would imagine some of Paul's family wasn't happy he was a Christian, but maybe this guy was okay with it by God's design. And long before this threat, God put this nephew of Paul in the very place where he would overhear the plan. And God just so happened, maybe encouraged or made it possible that one of these goofballs, these 40 guys who wants to kill Paul, talked a little bit too loud or in the wrong spot. Church, just remember this that before you encountered a problem, God had a plan. Before you encountered difficulty, God was working things together to get you through it. God is at work long before the difficulties we see came to us. Just imagine, at this very moment, you may not be able to see it. I don't know what you're staring in the face. Financial health, discouragement, emotional turmoil. I don't know. I know some of you maybe what it might be. I don't know what all of you are facing, but I just want you to close your eyes and think for a second. Imagine what pieces God might be moving into place right now that will be providing the solutions you need tomorrow. Imagine what pieces God might be moving into place right now to provide the solutions you need tomorrow. Trust him. God's ways are unexpected by us. (laughs) When God does something, 
I'll be honest, far more than it should, I'm surprised. Whoa! You mean we had a a need and this thing came up and provided for it? Wow! It may be unexpected by us, but it was planned by God long ago. You mean God took care of that? Yeah, God's been working on that for a good while now, and he's done it time and time and time again. That may catch you off guard, but God had been planning that from the beginning of time. Imagine how much more hope, how much more courage you could have, church family, if you just recognize that the very moment you don't know what's gonna happen next, God is in the works working out his plans. And it may turn out a little different than you think. Because here's the next principle. This is my favorite. God's ways are strange, yet sovereign. God's ways are strange, yet sovereign. I'll be honest, the end of chapter 23 is a little bit strange. Because if you remember, when Paul comes into Jerusalem, most of his friends left him, right? They had a tearful goodbye, and it's just a few people who came with him. So, so here's Paul walking into this very dark place with a very small group of people, and all of them are just like waiting for him to die. But Paul doesn't leave Jerusalem like that. This is weird. Paul leaves Jerusalem with an escort of soldiers fit for a king. You think I'm lying. Look at verse 23 of chapter 23. I'll just catch you up to speed. You remember that there was this conspiracy. It gets caught because of Paul's nephew. I forgot to tell you that. They they intercepted that one. And so the Romans are like, okay, this guy, we need to up the security. And they up it big time. Because in 20, chapter 23, here's the centurions. They, they called unto him two centurions saying, make ready 200 soldiers to go to Caesarea and horsemen, three score and 10, that's 70, and spearmen, 200 at the third hour of the night. Paul has 470 armed guards. Now, That's a little bit overkill if you ask me. I mean, he had 40 people who wanted to kill him. They had 470 guards. This is some strange stuff. Now, come on, put your imagination in gear. God says to Paul in verse number 11, what did he say? I'm gonna get you to Rome. I don't know about you, I've been thinking, okay, I'm trusting you, Lord, but I don't really see the light here. And then there's this death threat, right? And isn't it just like God? as Paul is riding on horseback to a boat. And he looks around and sees 470 people guarding him. What do you think was going through his mind? Okay, God, all right, you're with me. You were right, you're gonna get me to Rome. And then it gets even weirder because God, and, and really the next couple of chapters are just kind of odd. There's, there's these weird political things at play. And there's this guy, Lysias. He's the head centurion dude. 
in Jerusalem, and chapter 23 ends with Lysias in verse number 25 writing a letter, and somehow Paul got a hold of this letter. And, 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 or sorry, Luke got a hold of this letter, and he records the whole letter. Now, we're going to read it because we've got just a minute. Notice how self-obsessed and narcissistic this fella is. And it's so strange that God would use a narcissistic Roman guy to save his apostle because he's covering his tail through and through. Look at verse 25. He wrote a letter after this manner. He's writing it uh, to his boss, Felix. Claudius Lysias, under the most excellent governor Felix, sendeth greeting. This man was taken of the Jews and should have been killed by them. Then came I with an army and rescued him, having understood that he was a Roman. And when I would have known the cause wherefore they accused him, I brought him forth into their council, whom I perceived to be accused of the questions of their law, but have nothing laid to his charge worthy of death or of bonds. And when it was told me how that the Jews laid wait for the man, I sent straightway to thee and gave commandment to his accusers also to say before thee what they had against him. Farewell. This guy is working real hard to pad his reputation and God uses a narcissistic Roman to deliver Paul from death. And as he marches out of Jerusalem, the very place that his Christian friends thought he could not make it through, he is guarded by 470 people. Friend, God's ways are strange sometimes. But yet they show that he is in control, none of the less. I think God does a lot of his best work with some really strange situations. I've recently been reading through Genesis and Exodus and seeing how God saves his people through a brother sold into slavery. God displays his glory through judgment. God conquers death by a dying savior. Friend, I don't know what God will do in your life, but I know that God shows his control not in orthodox ways, but in some strange ways. It's been more than one time I've sat back and just had to chuckle at how God accomplished his will in my life and how God helped our family or encouraged me or did his work through the strangest things. If only I could tell you half of them. At the beginning of the message, I asked you this. How do we have hope when life comes at us time and time again? We have hope by remembering that God is in control even when life is out of control. God may not deliver you, by the way. I think implicit in verse 11 is that sometimes God's plans are wrapped up and he doesn't always bring every Christian to Rome. But I do know this, that God is always in control, even when life is out of control. And he doesn't show that in the way sometimes we hope. He does it through the ordinary things. He does it in unexpected ways by us, but things that are planned by him. And he does it in ways that are strange, but yet show that he's sovereign nonetheless. Friends, I I just want you to recognize that God's in control tonight.
and I don't know what will happen. But may we all look at verse 11 and do this. Have some hope. Have some hope. We believe in the sovereignty of God. It's in our doctrinal statement. But sometimes our panic, our fear, our anxiety shows that maybe we struggle with that a little more than we think. Be of good cheer. For as thou hast testified of me in Jerusalem, so must thou bear witness also at Rome. Remember, Christian, the Lord is not far away shouting words of encouragement to you. He stands by you. He is near and he is close. Let's pray together tonight. I'm gonna ask God to encourage you and help you. Don't know what ways you need that tonight. But God brought us here in Acts for a reason, didn't he? And so let's pray and ask him to help us remember these things. Father, we cry out to you tonight with hearts that, to be honest, God, sometimes we just don't know. We don't always see, we don't connect the dots how you're in control. But, but God, I pray that you would help, help me, help my brothers and sisters here in Christ in our own ways, try to wrap our minds around the truth that you are in control. God, help us to look for you to work in the ordinary things. God, help us to trust right now that even though we don't see how things are gonna work out or how you're gonna help us through something that you're working up a plan that we can't see, but it is just as real as if we could see it. And God, I, I pray that maybe hours, days, weeks, months from now, we would have a moment like Paul might have had riding out of Jerusalem on horseback, and we could look around and see the strange ways you've shown yourself faithful to us and just sit back and rejoice and maybe even laugh because you've been so good. We trust you'll do that with eyes of faith in Jesus' name. Amen.